I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good. The key to living a happy, joyful, meaningful life in recovery is learning how to look for enjoyment instead of pleasure. Learning how to look for satisfaction instead of pleasure. Learning how to look for connection, meaning, purpose, because those things are all pleasurable. They're all nice feelings, but they don't leave us the next day or after the fact feeling worse about ourselves. That's the problem with pleasure. Seeking pleasure alone, it can't possibly stay. You can engage in a behavior or use a substance and you get this big spike, which feels pleasurable inside your body and your mind, but by its very nature, it can't stay. Whatever you had for the two hours that substance was in you felt good for those two hours. But after the fact, you usually feel worse because of all those neurochemical changes, all that homeostasis stuff that we talk about in the videos. But not only that, but you usually feel bad about yourself for whatever happened that got you that pleasurable feeling. Or a lot of times you do, especially when you're talking about an addiction. So you're left feeling neurochemic worse, psychologically worse. And eventually you get to the point where you can only experience happiness, pleasure, satisfaction from one place. And that one place is that substance that you're addicted to. But the problem is that one place, it's your only source of pleasure, but it's causing you so much pain on the back end and you feel absolutely stuck. And that leads to feeling alone and isolated, which leads to feeling depressed which leads to feeling usually shameful about the behaviors that you've done in order to continue the addiction, the responsibilities that you've let go, the people you've disappointed, you've disappointed yourself, you've not attained your own goals. And so you get filled up with shame. And then naturally the people around you, they're mad at you because you haven't been holding up your end of the bargain on things. And so they're getting on your case. So you get full of resentment. Chasing pleasure in an addictive way only leads to the most unsatisfied, the most dark, depressing, lonely, isolated place. If you have been there and you can relate to that, put a little hands up emoji in the comments. So I know you're following. For me, those are like, like amens or something. I know you're here. I know you're listening. Now, if you want to get on the other side of that, it's more than just quit using the addictive substance, behavior, whatever it is. That's the first thing that's got to happen because as long as you're engaging in that, you keep yourself stuck in that negative feeling cycle and you just can't get out of it. But recovery really shouldn't be about what you're not allowed to have. That's depressing in and of itself. It's, oh, I can't have this anymore. I'm not allowed like everybody else can, but I can or whatever. And that's a dark, not a good place to be. And that's a lot of times what people think sobriety is, but that's not what it should be and what it is. What it should be is what you're getting in return. And when you learn to become really effective 
at getting the good stuff. We're going to talk about the good stuff in just a minute. You're so much happier. You're so much more joyful. You actually have a lot more pleasure in your life. The kind that doesn't cost you tremendously on the back end, the kind that you feel good about the next day and the next day and the next day. And sometimes 20 years later, you still feel good about it. So it's like it continues to be rewarding psychologically, neurochemically and all of those things. So let's talk about how to find enjoyment from life, how to find that happiness that's more attainable. The first thing is you got to look at happiness less like a feeling and and more like a a state of being. Yes, happiness, we experience these positive feelings and we usually label them happiness, but it comes from somewhere deeper, more deep down, lower than that. So let's get to talking about that. In order to have enjoyment in life, you've got to have people and memories attached to it. Those are the things that are going to bring you the most enjoyment. For example, when Kim, Bree, and Campbell and I were at the office and we're eating lunch, we literally tell the same old stories and laugh and have the best time recalling the same like 10 or 15 memories. We have stories we tell on Campbell. They have stories they tell on me and Kim and Bree, and we just enjoy them so much. And, And most of the time, they're just little silly things that just happen in an office environment, just a few things someone said or someone did. And every time we recall those memories, we laugh like it just happened. That creates that connection with someone else because it's like we have this memory and experience together and we all were there. We all remember it. We have this bond, this moment, this thing that no one else understands. And then the memory of it just solidifies it in our head. Do you guys have memories like that? You connect it to people, connection, experience. It could even be something really hard or really bad you went through. But you and your buddy, y'all did it together. And you're like, dude, that was awful. And you're like, I know that was awful. You still have those core components of people and positive memory and positive people connection in your life. That's a very reinforcing thing. In fact, a lot of times addiction starts not because of the substance, Not because of the thing, but because in a lot of cases, when you first use, do whatever the addictive behavior, a lot of times it's in the context and for a while, it'll make you feel more connected and you'll have these positive memories associated. That's what's reinforcing about the thing that's making it addictive. The problem is that as you continue to try to get back to that and rehab that positive memory experience, it's just less and less effective. In fact, when you're pretty far down into addiction, you can be having a really great moment. You can be having a really great experience. You can be having all your favorite people around you and you will still feel lonely and isolated and disconnected because you literally lose the biological ability to experience enjoyment in those moments, especially if it doesn't involve the substance. One of the things, when I think about this concept, I I remember back to the Chris Heron story. I think it was on Netflix for a while. I'm sure you can find it if you just Google it. He was a, a basketball player and I'm not a sports person, so I don't like remember him as a basketball player, but he tells this story about how all he ever wanted was to be a professional basketball player. And he wanted to play for the, his home team, the state he came from, or just, it was like, he was always a big fan and he always wanted to play for this team. And as he rose in those ranks, he was doing better and better and better in his career, but he was also becoming more and more addicted to opioids. And he talks about this moment in his story 
where he's winning like this big award, like lifetime achievement thing, like something that everybody would want to get. And all he could think about when he's standing up at the podium getting this award is hurrying it up, getting through it so he could run out into the parking lot and meet the guy who was supposed to be bringing him his whatever, right? And so here's one of your best moments of your life and you cannot find enjoyment and satisfaction from it. Now you can stand up there and fake it, but inside you don't feel it. Another story he tells in his documentary, he talks about when his children were born and he was excited about that or he was looking forward to that, but he like had to leave. His wife's in labor <laughs> and he has to leave the hospital. He's like making him an excuse or something like, oh, I got to run again. We forgot this at home and running out. But really he's like going to meet up the dealer and get a hit or whatever. And in his mind, it's so I can be present during the, the birth of my kid. And he just went on a bender and didn't come back. And at one point he, he stayed out homeless on the street because he left his wife in labor, giving birth to his child. Big moment, big life stuff. And then he was too ashamed to come back. So he literally lived on a street for a long time, like homeless at the 7-Eleven or something. You can watch the documentary, but those are the kinds of things that I think about. And even if whatever addiction is going on with you, you didn't get to that point where you left your wife in labor. Guess what? Here's a little secret I know about you. You probably don't want to tell it. I'm out in your secret. You might've been there, but if you didn't have the substance, you did not have the appreciation for that moment because you can't possibly when you're in an addicted state because you're either, if you're in an addicted state, you're either like intoxicated at the moment, which kind of messes with being present and in the moment there, or you're not, which is even worse. And so you're in withdrawal. And so no matter what's happening, you're having like a bad batch of neurochemicals going on in your brain and you feel crappy. So even for the things that you show up for, you're just not there and you cannot enjoy them. And to me, that's the, that's, you guys know, I always say there's no bad reason to get sober. <laughs> I haven't heard one I didn't like. I like them all and I don't care how trivial they are. I don't care who else they're for. They're all good. But my favorite one is once people understand that's like the reason to get sober so you can enjoy the moments in your life so that you can stop living from one like addictive episode to the next because that's what life becomes your whole life becomes revolving around getting from one addict behavior episode to the next one and immediately to the next one to the next one and everything else in life becomes just crap you have to do in between and for a while you can keep doing that crap and people won't really know like your life looks manageable but the longer it goes on the less and less capable of doing that leading you to feeling worse and worse. So when you think about getting sober, you should actually feel hopeful about it, right? Because it means there's a way out of this freaking misery trap, because that's what it is. It's a misery trap. It's just, it's nothing good in there. So if you're dealing with a loved one who's addicted, I just want you to know, it may look like it was fun and it probably was fun for the person in the beginning but by the time you get to watching this channel whether you're watching it for yourself or for your loved one it's not fun anymore okay it's like literally this treadmill that they're tied to and you're like oh you just want to go get high or whatever but it that the days of getting high and the days of it being fun by the time you're on this channel are long gone <laughs> and so it feels like why are you choosing that over me it's because they're stuck in this horrible hostage taking situation of addiction now, if you want to increase your happiness, you increase your enjoyment. And that has to do with 
people and memories. This next little piece of the formula, if you want to have a happy, joyful, sober life, whether you are a family member in recovery or a person in addiction recovery, either which way, doesn't even have to be recovery at all, actually. This is how to live a happy, joyful life, is you want to have moments of satisfaction. So let's talk about where satisfaction comes from. You can only get satisfaction from in from a painful situation. And what I mean by that is you feel satisfied when you do hard things. That's where satisfaction comes from. You're satisfied with yourself because you went to the gym today. You're satisfied with yourself because you followed through with your journaling goal. You feel satisfied with yourself because you got through a hard work day or that you put in the hard work and you got that college degree. If you think back to all the moments and the things in your life that you feel most satisfied about, it was always related to some sort of difficulty. There's just nothing like it. It's just a good serotonin drip. There's some good neurochemicals involved there, but it you cannot have it without having the struggle and the pain. So let me give you an example. Let's say if you're achieving things and it looks like you're doing hard things, but you're doing it because you're using some kind of substance maybe to enhance you. Like maybe let's say you worked really hard and you got a big promotion at work, but deep down in your heart, you only got that big promotion because you've been doing like speed for two months straight and you've slept like four hours in a month or something like that. You're not going to get the satisfaction even if you get the promotion, even if you get the reward because deep down inside, you didn't earn it. You didn't really go through the hard thing. You have this feeling like you cheated and it like takes all the fun out of it. And so even when you get the award and the all the stuff, it's and other people are like, man, that was awesome. You did it. And deep down inside, you're just, yeah. And you smile and you're like, yeah, no, it's awesome. But inside you just feel crappy because satisfaction comes from doing hard things, from getting rewards that were earned. And that's the key there is it has to be earned through pain, hard work. If you want to become like really good at having a happy, successful life and you really understand this principle, what will happen is even when you're in the middle of the difficult stuff, you'll start to actually, you can self-reward, you can self-dopamine drip yourself by reminding yourself of I'm doing the hard stuff and you will literally feel happy right in the moment when you're doing the hard stuff so not only after you've done the hard stuff and accomplished it but while you're in the moment look at me I'm running and I don't want to run I'm running it hurts really bad and you can reinforce with dopamine that drip that'll keep you doing that hard behavior longer which will lead to a higher sense of satisfaction because neurochemically what's happening is you're getting more dopamine from that when you're being proud of yourself in those moments for doing hard things, which puts at bay the other neurochemicals that make you stop doing hard behaviors. And so you're able to do it longer and you're usually able to be more successful with it. So it's just like a momentum thing. And when you can appreciate that and you're proud of yourself, like those of you who watch and your family members and the hard thing you're doing right now, which is really freaking hard, is you're listening to Amber and you're not saying all those things to your loved one that you want to say. Like you're withholding and you're holding that back and you're putting a little smile on your face and you're doing the strategies and it's freaking hard. And there's probably a part inside that's like, what the heck? I had this concept with this young girl the other day. She's like, she's a young mom. And she said, how do you do this without feeling like you're giving up part of yourself? I'm like, dude, you, you're giving up part of you're shutting down a little piece of yourself, that little piece that wants to yell, scream, you know, all the stuff but you start to see that progress, you feel proud of yourself, even though that's hard. And when you're, when you don't do it, you mention, dang, it's funny because when people talk to me in their consultations, they come to the office, like they usually want to start their confession. Oh, Amber, I screwed it all up. Listen to what I said. <laughs> it's, you want to 
not run from those hard, difficult moments. And the third ingredient to a happy, joyful life has to do with purpose. And you hear all this talk, and I talk a lot on the channel about living a life of purpose. And sometimes us us counselors, we like to say vague stuff like that. Okay, Amber, but how do you do that? What does that mean? Basically, you get that sense of purpose from doing work that serves other people. That's how you get a sense of purpose. In the 12-step tradition, and y'all know, I don't think you have to do the 12 steps. I'm just pointing out one of the things here that works about it, but you don't have to be in the 12-step program to do it, is you're, you, the 12th step is actually, basically it's like paying it forward. They're saying is you can't keep what you have unless you give it away. So it's, it's basically like your job is to carry the message, is to help another alcoholic. But what works for that, it's actually very neurochemical. You feel good about yourself when you are serving other people. And when you think about these three things combined, they all morph into one thing or they morph into one feeds the other. Because if you're working hard, you feel proud of yourself. If that work serves someone else, you feel even more proud of yourself. And if you've got people that have done the work alongside you, then you add the people and the memories in. And now you have real contentment. So if we could stop chasing moments of pleasure and start Figuring out how to be content in our lives will be a lot happier. And when we even become happy with the process, we, we self-reward with that dopamine of getting through those hard things. You don't even have to wait till you did the hard thing to get the happiness. You can get the, you can get the happiness, the good neurochemicals right now today, even in the middle of the hard thing. It is definitely doable. And everybody talks about it's so hard. People don't get sober, this and that. And I, I'm like, part of the reason for that is because the freaking messaging is wrong. First of all, we run around and say, only 10% of people who go to treatment get sober. I'm like, okay, first that's dumb. Maybe 10% of people that went to one specific treatment on one day got sober. But that same person that didn't get sober that day probably went again and probably went again and probably eventually got sober. So we're not looking at it over the long haul. And we're telling people, oh, it's just hard. It's just miserable. And we try to teach them to focus on, remember you're alcoholic and you're an addict and you can't have that. So we're like literally telling them to focus on what they don't have and what they can't do, like nonstop. We don't want them to stop thinking about that because something might happen. Like you better remember it. <laughs> and none of those things meet this formula for what we know works. But that's the way we think about recovery. That's the way we present recovery. That's Those are the messages that we send, none of which are really true. Because <laughs> I see people get sober every day all kinds of ways. Some go to treatment, some don't. Some go to 12 steps, some don't. People get sponsors, people don't get sponsors. Like people do it without ever having gone to a meeting ever. And they're very happy. It's, can you figure out how to put these ingredients in your life? If you can, you've done it. It's just about the ingredients. It's not about the place. It's not about the therapist. It's not about the sponsor. It's about these ingredients. And if you can figure out how to do that, you can have recovery. You can have happiness and pleasure and enjoyment. And actually you're going to feel really good about yourself when you manage to conquer this big, bad demon that you're struggling with. You get a sense of pride. And no matter what else happens today, I was sober. You feel proud of yourself. It's like when you exercise, like I may not have done a whole lot else, but I exercise. So I feel good about me. Right. It's like that. It's like a baseline of satisfaction that, that stays there as long as you stay in your recovery mode.
If you'd like to get additional advice, support, coaching on your specific situation, consider becoming a member. When you become a member, you actually become a family member. Every single week, our family recovery specialist, Kim and Campbell, come on, they do live group coaching calls so you can ask uh, questions about your situation, get advice, get feedback, find out what to do next. And those live group coaching calls are exclusive members only. You also get the support of the community and you get advanced skills training. I'll put the link in the description so you can become a family member today. All right, let's take a look at who's here. Let's answer some questions. Jennifer says, love your caption today. So hard to see beyond what we're giving up. Dude, you're giving up one thing and you're getting everything else. It's a pretty good deal. No one will say it's, it's not a, it's a good deal. Can't get a better deal than that. For your hands, your little hands and the little emoji hands. Jessica says, hello, first Time, a long time viewer. My wife and I struggle with alcohol. I'm more functional and she becomes angry and aggressive and possibly has bipolar. I think there's a little bit more to your thing here. Here it is. I'm resonating with all this. Resentment is there. The easy way to cope is tearing us both down. You know what I'm impressed with, Jessica? I'm actually impressed the fact that you're saying we both struggle with alcohol and you're saying my my wife's alcohol stuff looks worse than mine because she has more unmanageability and she gets angry. But you're putting yourself right in that same boat because I can't tell you how many times like we treat couples where they both have alcohol problems, but one of them maybe is like slightly further down the road. And so it's, oh, you're the alcoholic, right? And the other one just continues and says, oh, I don't have a problem. And it's because as long as their behavior isn't as bad as that behavior, it's like they don't want to address it or look at it. So the fact that you're willing to say, hey, we're both engaging in this totally counterproductive behavior, it, it, it really says a lot about your self-awareness, your humility, your insight, and your willingness to say, hey, we're in this together. Let's do something and, and not to say always oh, them because the, she can't handle her stuff or whatever because it's easy to fall into that category let's see eric says when if so does occasional bin drinking for back-to-back -back nights using drinking to escape the reality for evening classifies an addiction my spouse is high functioning and doesn't see the pattern of the problem when does it become addiction? Is that's what you're asking? Like, where's the line between drinking too much and being alcoholic? It's not a one line in the sand. It's a process. It's a continuum. And a lot of people don't recognize it until they are like drinking every day or they're like waking up and drinking or something like they don't even see that it's happening. But for a lot of people, even in those binge drinking days, even though they maybe only drink on the weekends, but it's too much you're already in the alcoholism. You're already in there. I have a video, Eric, on the channel, which actually goes through the exact criteria. I think it's called either am I an alcoholic or how to know if you're an alcoholic. And I go through all the 11 official clinical criteria and that might help you see. And so it's not like a, are they or aren't they? It's like, where are we on the continuum? Are we mild, moderate, severe? And that video takes you through all that and will show you, help you figure that out. But... That might be helpful for you to figure out, but let me tell you what not to do, okay? Because I'm worried about you, Eric. Where'd you go make mistakes? Don't go try to send your addicted in denial loved one and make them watch the video unless you're seeing some kind of like willingness or desire to explore the issue or they're talking to you about it. Don't try to say, I looked at the criteria, I watched Amber's video and here's the 11. You've got 10 of them. Don't do that. That's not going to get you to the denial. That's going to get you to the resentment and self-pity. All right, let's see here. Stephanie says, the family therapist recommended I kick him out, yet he is not destructive, is not stealing, just disrespectful 
and isolated. I have put some boundaries in place that I am able to enforce. Okay, good for you. So the thing about kicking someone out is the Pythagoras is probably saying that based on, look, they're too comfortable. And there may be a little truth in that, that the person, there's just life's too comfortable, especially if they're like not working and, and they're trying to tip the scale. But if you're not ready to do that as a family member, I get that. I'm always leery to tell someone to kick someone out because if it goes bad and something bad happens, I'm like, oh, it's not going to be on me. I usually say, you'll know it when you're there. <laughs> Matt says, my alcoholic girlfriend has been giving some change talk, but wants to see a traditional therapist, which I know isn't ideal. Is this a time to say, we'll try it your way or do I need to do something else? First of all, Matt. I can tell from your question that you're getting these concepts. So I'm impressed. First of all, you're saying change talk. So that tells me that you're really tracking and you're getting it and you're understanding and learning. And then you're understanding the, the traditional therapist thing. You're saying, is this a bargain? The video, I think, yeah, it came out this week is be careful about sending your loved one to counseling if they have an addiction. If they are wanting to go, I think it's fine for them to go. In the video, what I, the earlier video this week, what I'm talking about is I'm like, don't you push and encourage them to do it? Because when you're making them do it, I promise you all this getting talked about in that session is what a big jerk ball you are and how you're not fair and how you don't get it and how you're critical or whatever. I know because I'm the therapist whose office they're sitting in. And that's what they always say. <laughs> so if they're asking to go, yeah, for sure. I would, it may not fix it because it's not going to get fixed until they address it, but it's a step, right? It's a bargain. So yeah, let's do it. Hey, is it Yazzie? Hey, Yazzie. Uh, Yazzie says, I feel proud of my addiction because of everything I survived. I feel proud of my recovery. Yeah, dude, it's hard, right? It's hard to get out of that. And you get a tremendous sense of satisfaction knowing that dang I dug out of a really deep hole and I feel much better for it 365 question is it wrong to feel happy about your addiction I feel like people want me to be more ashamed and be more closed-mouthed I mean it, it's one of those it's one of those things it's you have those experience in life and you're like I can't say I'm really glad it happened but I feel like I'm a stronger better person because it happened in some ways I'm glad and I feel proud of the person I've become because of it I've had some experiences in life that if you said, would you do it again? I, I don't know that I would say yes. And I, but I also don't know if I'd be the same person without the experience. I think it's, I think it's completely appropriate to say, Hey, I'm not proud of the things that I did when I was in addiction, but I'm proud of who I've become because of the hard work I had to put in to get out of it. I think that's perfectly appropriate. Let's see here. I'm looking for the questions. You guys know if you put the word question or put some question marks in front, it helps me see them faster. First time being live, I've been watching your 30-day emails. I've been trying to find the best way and quietly to sober up. Oh, okay. First of all, thanks. I'm glad you're watching the 30-day jumpstart videos. Those are a free series. Anybody can get those. You can go to our website, go to the free resources page. I think you can find them right there. And it's like these little tiny, like little three-minute videos that just come to your inbox every day and give you like a message to help you stay motivated and stuff. One of the things I'm hearing what you're saying is you're, you're talking about quietly trying to sober up and that can be a little bit hard because if you're trying to do it and not tell anyone, you definitely don't need to tell everyone, but if you're trying to do it and not tell anyone, it's just hard because there's no accountability for you. Um, and if you would tell at least one person, then you feel like it's out there and you feel like, okay, it just gives you more motivation and it, it holds you steady on rough days. So I don't know if that's what you meant when you said quietly. You might not have even meant that. I jumped to that conclusion, but. But glad you made the live and glad you're watching the 30 day jump start. 
Zoran says, I've been dealing with my self-pity, my own and the addicts. What are possible one-liners to avoid the manipulation fallout that comes with the pity party? You're talking about how, are you asking like, how do you respond when your loved one is in like victim mode? The best way to respond is to think about what it is they're trying to say to you and use what I call tactical empathy. It's sort of part of what we teach in the invisible intervention. It's like making them feel heard and understood. And you don't have to necessarily validate, you know, that whatever their feelings are for themselves about makes it okay for them to continue to make bad choices. You can do it without doing that, but I'll tell you what won't work. (laughs) What won't work is quit feeling sorry for yourself. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Quit being weenie whining or whatever. That won't work. So I would try the empathetic statements. I would, you can reinforce any kind of positive behavior change that's in the right direction if you want to, but just try to avoid like lashing at them because that won't help. They'll just feel more sorry for themselves. (laughs) All right. Kaylin says, love your channel. What are your thoughts about how much together time is too much? How important is it to have separate social lives? I think that depends on the couple, like and the individuals within the system, like some people tolerate more togetherness and they like it and they just want to be with the other person all the time. If both people feel that way, it works good. (laughs) What doesn't work good is like when one person feels that way and the other person doesn't. And then you have to like negotiate that basically. I'm not sure if if you're saying, if you're hinting at Kaylin that you're like, I need some, I need some me time, some alone time. And that's plenty fine. Like, and definitely for those of you family members, don't feel like you need to be with the person every second because you're babysitting. First of all, that doesn't work. And just don't, that's not good for anybody. If that's why it's happening, you definitely want to, you want to avoid that. Let's see. Shristi says, a cricket club, a gym, and doesn't see his drinking friend. Asks me to lock him up when I leave for work. His friends tell me he has stopped drinking, takes medicine, but I keep finding many bottles every five to six days. I question him and he says it's all what is happening to him. Well, there could be a couple things happening. One thing is he's trying. It sounds like they are actually trying and, and putting in like real action steps, real good things to try to not engage in the behavior. But they could be having slips like once a week or so. Because my guess is, you didn't say this, Tristy, but my guess is you would know if they were old because you don't live all over the house. <laughs> and they weren't there the day before. So that's just my guess. That's the case with most families. If that's happening and you're going to bring it up to them, you can say, hey, I, I found these. And if they say, oh, that's old, you can say, mm, having a hard time, having a hard time with that, but I, okay, maybe. And just, so you don't have to argue and say, I know you're lying and call them out and start an argument, but you can put the impression out there that it's like, I'm not buying that. It depends on how good your relationship is at the time. If it's a client and it's me and I've been seeing them, I'll be like, dude, I don't believe that. I'm like, you better try to tell me something else. And I would just say it funny, but you have to have a really good relationship to do that. Like you got to be in a good place. And you also have to take into account like how sensitive is the other person about it. Let's see here. Nancy has a question. Help me deal with my daughter who's counting on her tax return to pay back rent by the 15th. My boundary. Should I give her more time? She says she is broke and works part-time. 
The way I figure out those things as far as how much to help someone is how much they're helping themselves. If you get the impression that they really are trying, they're doing everything they can, they're waiting for the tax return, like legit style, then giving them a few more days, I'm fine with that. But if you're giving them more days and you feel like they're not trying or they're lying or they're just like lazing around on the couch all day or something like that, you're probably going to end up with resentment. But I don't know if they're living in your house and they're paying you rent or if they're living somewhere else and you pay their rent, but they're supposed to be paying you back. I'm not sure what the what the other alternative would be like is it going to involve you kicking them out i don't know there's more to that story deanne says my 20 year old daughter is currently in rehab can i throw away anything i find in my home related to her using while she is gone i just started counseling myself next week okay good for you you know what i would ask your daughter about it because it's just a respectful thing to do you can say to your daughter Hey, if I found some old like stuff, leftover stash, paraphernalia, whatever, you cool if I you cool if I toss it and get her to say yes. Cause it's gonna be real awkward for her to say no. <laughs> it's gonna be really obvious what the intentions are. And then so if you get her to say yes, then you're in the good. If you just do it without that, then The person may feel like disrespected or judged or something like that. And you may get a negative reaction out of them. Even if they weren't planning to use it, they may just feel like, why are you going through my stuff or whatever? You always want to treat another person with dignity and respect, even if they're making bad choices, (laughs) even if they're in jail. The, The more dignity and respect you can treat people with, the more you'll get back. So that's the way I would handle it. I know I'm going to get some comment. I know y'all going to say, it's your house. You can have whatever stuff you want in there. And they're right. You have every right to do that. But those of you who are watching this channel, you're watching because you're saying, how do I help support them? How do I help get an addicted person to go in the right direction? Do you have the right to toss it out? Sure do. Is it the most effective thing to do for your relationship? I just want to ask. My guess is she'll say, yeah, and then you're cool. All right, everybody. I think we are about to run out of time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those who joined us. There are resources in the description. Definitely go check those out. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to our audio. But did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion, ask questions, give, and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.